This is uh, Ezekiel chapter 16, 1 to 2, and then jumping to 44 to 63. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices. Everyone who quotes Proverbs will quote this proverb about you, like mother, like daughter. You are a true daughter of your mother, who despised her husband and her children. And you are a true sister of your sisters, who despised their husbands and their children. Your mother was a Hittite, and your father an Amorite. Your elder sister was Samaria, who lived to the north of you with her daughters. And your younger sister, who lived to the south of you with her daughters, was Sodom. You not only followed their ways and copied their detestable practices, but in all your ways you soon became more depraved than they. As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters never did to you and your daughter, never did what you and your daughters have done. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. Samaria did not commit half the sins you did. You have done more detestable things than they, and have made your sisters seem righteous by all these things you have done. Bear your disgrace, for you have furnished some justification for your sisters. Because your sins were more vile than theirs, they appear more righteous than you. So then, be ashamed and bear your disgrace, for you have made your sisters appear righteous. However, I will restore the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters, and of Samaria and her daughters, and your fortunes along with them, so that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all you have done in giving them comfort. And your sisters, Sodom with her daughters, and Samaria with her daughters, will return to what they were before, and you and your daughters will return to what you were before. You would not even mention your sister Sodom in the day of your pride, before your wickedness was uncovered. Even so, you are now scorned by the daughters of Edom, and all her neighbours and the daughters of the Philistines, all those around you who despise you. You will bear the consequences of your lewdness and your detestable practices, declares the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says, I will deal with you as you deserve, because you have despised my oath by breaking the covenant. Yet I remember the covenant I made with you in the days of, of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both those who are older than you and those who are younger. I will give them to you as daughters, but not on the basis of my covenant with you. So I will establish my covenant with you, and you will know that I am the Lord. Then, when I make atonement for you for all you have done, you will remember and be ashamed, and never again open your mouth because of your humiliation, declares the Sovereign Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Peter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that in the written word and through the spoken word, we may see the living word, your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Many years ago, a builder removed part of a clay bank at the back of my parents' house. And he put up a retaining wall to hold back the rest of the bank. 
It looked great. But a few months later, serious cracks appeared in it. It was hopelessly inadequate for the load that it was supposed to bear. Well, as we move on through the book of Ezekiel from last week's reading, we find the prophet warning the people that they'd built a flimsy wall. He was talking about how they'd constructed an unrealistic view of their situation, about how their imagined standing before God was no more than a facade. They liked listening to preachers who made them feel good about their wall, who told them what they wanted to hear. But God denounced these false prophets. He said, They lead my people astray, saying, Peace, where there is no peace. And when a flimsy wall is built, they cover it with whitewash. The problem was that their wall would collapse when it was put to the test. God's charge against these preachers was this. You say the Lord declares, though I have not spoken. It's a reminder that the term fake news can also apply to things that are said about God. Ezekiel's preaching, by contrast, did not offer the reassuring words the people wanted to hear. But it was important that they listened, and that we do too, because it came from God. Our reading this morning contains both a sobering challenge and a remarkable message of hope. So let's take a closer look at what it says. We need to remind ourselves briefly of the context. The golden age in the kingdom of Israel was when David and later his son Solomon ruled the nation. After Solomon's death, the country split into two kingdoms with capital cities at Samaria in the north and at Jerusalem in the south. Samaria was notorious for its idolatry and its disregard for God's laws. It came to a miserable end after two centuries. At the time of our reading, Jerusalem was still in existence, but it was in terminal decline in terms of its faith, its society, and its national security. Ezekiel was among thousands of its leading citizens who had already been deported to Babylonia. He'd been delivering messages from God to the exiles who were with him there. The particular message contained in our reading is an allegory about three sisters named after cities. Jerusalem, where the exiles had come from, Samaria, and Sodom. It would show the people that their wall, the construction that they had put on their situation, was about to collapse. Let's start 
by looking at Samaria. Jerusalem could hardly object to her being called a sister, since both nations were descended from Jacob. But they had a low opinion of her. For despite her calling to be a holy nation, she had bought into the values of the nations round her. Prophets such as Elijah and later Amos and Hosea denounced Samaria for her idolatry and wrong behaviour. Indeed, Ezekiel himself described her unfaithfulness to God in these really blunt words. She gave herself as a prostitute to all the elite of the Assyrians and defiled herself with all the idols of everyone she lusted after. So, Jerusalem looked down on Samaria. She'd been an embarrassment, the black sheep of the family. She had disgraced herself. She had brought about her own downfall. The next sister was Sodom. Sister, the exiles from Jerusalem would have shouted back. Sister, how dare you call Sodom our sister? What an insult. It's easy to grasp the offence that this would have caused. For a start, Sodom was a heathen city. So how could she even be in the same family? What's more, Sodom wasn't just any heathen city. She had been utterly notorious for her moral disintegration, the very worst of the lot. We read this about her in Genesis chapter 18. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. And in this morning's reading, God said this. Now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. Back in Genesis, we're told that Abraham, the father of the Israelite nation, had interceded for Sodom. But not even the prayer of Abraham, the friend of God, could spare her from judgment. As far as Jerusalem was concerned, Sodom had deserved all she got. The world was a better place without her. So, morally and spiritually, Samaria and Sodom are ugly sisters in this story. Now, if this was a fairy tale, Jerusalem would be the beautiful one in the family. And indeed, that was how she perceived herself. But at this point, Ezekiel's message really hit home. For he said this about Jerusalem. Samaria did not commit half the sins you did. You have done 
more detestable things than they and have made your sisters seem righteous by all these things you have done. There must have been a stunned silence among the exiles. For Jerusalem was their city, but a mirror had now been held up to them and it had shown them up to be the ugliest of them all. Her sisters looked good by comparison. Jerusalem had outdone Samaria in her idolatry, even practicing other religions in God's own temple, as we heard last week. And she'd outdone Sodom in her social wrongdoing, for later Ezekiel could list her sins of bloodshed and sexual immorality and her oppression of the vulnerable. Jerusalem needed to wake up to the seriousness of her condition, to see herself as God saw her. She could readily identify the wrongdoing of others, but not her own. Sodom and Samaria had been judged by God for their sins. And Sodom hadn't even possessed the knowledge of God that Jerusalem had. So, since God is just, how could Jerusalem now possibly escape? Centuries later, Jesus made a similar point when faced with stubborn unbelief in his public ministry. He said, and you, Capernaum, if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. So, the first purpose of Ezekiel's allegory about these three sisters was to challenge Jerusalem about her blindness to her own sin. And maybe we also need to ask ourselves whether we have such a blind spot. Samaria was part of God's people, yet she had followed the idolatries of her time and the values of those around her. Might we do the same? And then there was Sodom. She was accused of being arrogant, overfed and unconcerned, failing to help the poor and needy. That could also be said of industrialized nations today when so many in our world face severe poverty. Do we show the compassion that God expects of us to those in need? Let's ask God to remove our blind spots and show us what needs to change. There could be no surprise about the consequences of Jerusalem's sin. Sodom had been judged. Samaria had been judged. Now it would be Jerusalem's turn. Ezekiel had already made that clear in his previous messages about the impending siege and destruction of Jerusalem. But there really is 
a surprise in what Ezekiel said next. For against all expectation, they still had a future. We read, However, I will restore the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters, and of Samaria and her daughters, and your fortunes along with them. What's going on here? Is God going to judge them or to restore them? The answer is both. God's justice required judgment, yet his love still shone through. So Ezekiel now conveys three statements from God. Firstly, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will deal with you as you deserve because you have despised my oath by breaking the covenant. Jerusalem had stubbornly and persistently broken the covenant that God had made with her through Moses. Every appeal from God had been ignored so they would face judgment. Secondly, God says, yet I will remember the covenant I made with you in the days of your youth and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. The people had broken the previous covenant but God would still remember them. His love for them had not ceased. He was going to make a new and everlasting covenant with them. Thirdly, then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters. I will give them to you as daughters, but not on the basis of my covenant with you. The new covenant would include all three sisters. Unlike the old covenant, other nations would be included, extending even as far as Sodom, the worst of them all. So Ezekiel had sprung two surprises on his hearers, that there would be restoration even when all seemed lost, and that the restoration would include other nations. He's no longer merely talking about the physical restoration of Jerusalem after its destruction. He's talking about the inclusion of people from other nations in God's family. I wonder how the exiles felt about that prospect. They'd have been incensed by Ezekiel's description of Sodom as their sister. Now he had the audacity to say that Sodom would be included in a new covenant that God would make with them. It was a scandal. What was the world coming to? Yet, on reflection, how could they possibly object? The restoration wasn't going to be based on their merits, for they had none. Instead, it would be all about God's grace. It wasn't based on who had done a decent job of keeping God's laws. If it had been based on what people deserved, no one would have qualified. Paul explains this 
in his letter to the Romans. He wrote, But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Righteousness here means being right with God. We might be tempted to think that some are more deserving of this than others. But Paul continues, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's often said that death is the ultimate statistic. One out of one people die. But with the sole exception of Jesus, the same could be said of sin. One out of one people sin. So what Paul wrote next really is good news. For after saying that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, he continued, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God's invitation is to everyone. Jesus came on a rescue mission to save those who would otherwise perish. And as one commentator put it, we don't get to decide who else should be in the lifeboat. We should just be profoundly thankful that we've been brought on board. So far, we've considered what Ezekiel's story says about the seriousness of our sin, the surprise of hope, and the scandal of God's grace. Finally, we need to consider what it says about the shame of our past. Jerusalem had considered herself morally superior. We read, you would not even mention your sister Sodom in the day of your pride before your wickedness was uncovered. That pride would have no place in the new covenant. For they're told, then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters. Ezekiel was describing a radical transformation in how they would view themselves and others. As Paul continued in his letter to the Romans, where then is boasting? It is excluded. As the end of our reading said, then when I make atonement for you for all you have done, you will remember and be ashamed and never again open your mouth because of your humiliation, declares the Sovereign Lord. Proud speech and superior attitudes would have to come to an end. But we might wonder, if God forgives, why would there still be shame about the past? When God makes us right with him, his forgiveness is indeed complete. As Psalm 103 says, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. And God said through Isaiah, I 
Even I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. God no longer remembers our sins. Yet we should remember how he has saved us from the shame of our past. We see an illustration of this in the Apostle Paul when he wrote to Timothy, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Why did Paul call himself the worst of sinners? Well, in his own world, in his own words, he was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. He'd spoken evil of Christ. He had threatened believers with death as he tried to stamp out the early church. Was he ashamed of this? Certainly. Was he oppressed by the memory of what he had done? Certainly not. For just after declaring himself to be the worst of sinners, he burst out in praise, saying, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. We find the same pattern in the life of John Newton, the slave trader who came to faith and became a Christian minister. He too remembered the shame of his past. Indeed, later in life he wrote this, although my memory is fading, I remember two things very clearly. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour. And how he felt about this was memorably captured in his hymn of praise, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We may be neither persecutor nor slave trader, But as we read in the book of Isaiah, before the holiness of God, even our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Every member of Christ's church is a forgiven sinner. And we should never lose sight of this. The shame of our past should keep us humble towards others and full of gratitude towards God. And so we reach the end of Ezekiel's allegory about the three ugly sisters. The exiles had a blind spot when it came to their standing before God. And they sought out preachers who made them feel comfortable. Might we be tempted to do the same? Ezekiel certainly wasn't a comfortable preacher. He spoke bluntly about the seriousness of their sin. But he also spoke of a surprising hope, the scandal of God's grace towards everyone, and the shame of the past that should bring humble gratitude towards God for his full and complete forgiveness. John Newton 
experienced this grace when he listened to what God said about his sin. He made that very point in his hymn when he wrote, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." That grace is at the heart of the gospel. And so, in the words of Peter, let us make it our prayer that we will grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. Amen.